Good morning again. I always cry when I'm getting prayed over. Uh, good morning. I'm happy to be up here. I had a long week. It was a really rough week. Every day I was like, um, I felt like my head was in a cloud. I was like, oh my gosh, I was just bogged down with stuff. So I was like, Lord, I've got to get focused. I need focus. I'm sharing this Sunday. So, but I think God uh, sometimes uses those times even as we just press in with him more and hear him more. Um, so I'm excited to be up here sharing. I felt like uh, it's a key passage out of Colossians. I don't know about you guys, I'm loving going through Colossians. I think that it's been so good for the season that we're in as a church, and I personally am being so challenged and so stirred by it, um, by the book of Colossians, and just Paul, just Paul and who he was and who, how he lived his life, just and gave everything. So I'm continuing, and we're starting in verse 24. If you want to look up and follow along in your Bible or on your phone, we're going through verse 24 through 29 this morning. But before I start, I just want to share a picture just to kind of set up this first part of the passage that we're looking at. So I want us to envision in our mind just a big, tall tree, like maybe a big oak tree or even taller trees, wherever they have really tall trees in Oregon or Washington, but really tall, tall, mature tree that is um, providing shelter and just sheltering a little baby tree. Um, a baby tree that's trying to grow, that's vulnerable, and this big tree is providing a shelter, taking all the hits, to weathering the storm, losing branches, dealing with all the weather um, and all the attack, just so that this little baby tree can survive and can grow in a safe environment. And I, I felt like that's um, sort of what Paul is doing here for the early church. He is like that big tree, that tall, mature tree that takes all the hits, and he's taking all the opposition from the enemy, he's taking all the persecution, and he's taking it. Meanwhile, there are little churches springing up, and baby Christians and baby churches springing up all over, and Colossae is one of them, um, and being able to be sheltered. And the distraction is on Paul, the, the leaders and all all that is focused on Paul, and even in the heavenly realms, the spiritual opposition is focused on Paul so that the church can be established, the church of Colossae, which is such a beautiful picture. So let's start by looking in verse 24. Now I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your benefit, and in my own flesh I am completing what is lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings for the sake of his body that is for the sake of the church. Paul suffered. Paul suffered for the gospel. At this point, he's in prison for the gospel. What does it mean that he's completing Christ's sufferings? That's kind of confusing, right? Because we know that Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice. His death paid the price, and there's nothing that needs to be added to his sacrifice to make his sacrifice okay to God. So there's nothing that needs to be added. So what does he mean? He's completing Christ's sufferings. But the suffering that Paul is enduring is for exactly what we just talked about, just the establishment of the local church. For the, new, the early church to be established, Paul is suffering. So it's not in addition to Christ's suffering, but it's an extension of what Jesus did. It's almost like he's following Christ's example, and he's suffering so that the early church can be established. Because, remember, up until this point, um, sometimes we forget this, but up until this point in time, salvation was only for the Jews. 
that Jewish people were the chosen people. And now, for the first time in history, this is a turning point where he's making it available to everyone. There's equality, where everyone can be saved, which this is such a key time in history. And Paul is preaching equality, and the message of the gospel is going out to people everywhere for the very first time in history. He says to the Gentiles, but that's basically everyone who wasn't Jewish. And the gospel and salvation is now for everyone. This, of course, really upset the Jewish leaders because they were thinking themselves very elite. They were very proud. They thought themselves better and elite and special and they tended to look down on everybody else. And so this was upsetting to them, which is one of the reasons Paul is suffering. And you can imagine how offensive this gospel was. But it's such a picture of, when we think of the equality, I just had to take a minute and think about how where else can people join and belong besides a local church outside, like the way, sorry, it's not coming out right, but the way people join and belong usually is by, we connect based on race, or we connect based on our place in life or our status. There's all kinds of reasons we connect, maybe political views, but in the church, we connect because of Jesus, just because of our faith and trust in Jesus. And where else does that exist? Nowhere but in the kingdom of God, where we just connect based on our love for him and our wholehearted devotion to him. So there's always opposition from the enemy when God is establishing and advancing his kingdom, especially when you're pioneering. So especially in pioneering work like Paul's doing, there's always opposition. The devil doesn't want a thriving church. Do we believe that? He doesn't want a thriving church. He doesn't want a pumping church, a worshiping, a spirit-filled, a Jesus-preaching, a gospel-centered church. He wants a weak church, powerless, focused on ourselves all the time, not really doing much of anything for God. That Nothing would make him happier than that. Nothing. But Paul wants to see this thriving church. He's passionate to see that, and he's suffering for that. And we've benefited from Paul's suffering. We have benefited from the suffering of those who've gone before us. Let's move on to verse 25 and 26 and just talk about Paul's call and the task he had and how he went about it. Verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So Paul has a call from God. That's the first thing to note here is he's called and he's sure of his call and he's sure of his commission. And it says that his call is to present the word of God in its fullness to everyone. So what does that mean? Present the word of God. Does he mean present scripture? No, because the Bible wasn't in written form. So he's not presenting scripture to every person. So what does it mean? But the Bible says Jesus is a word, the word incarnate. Jesus himself is the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus, is the word that Paul's referring to. So it could be read, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you Jesus, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. Jesus was the mystery. And that's who Paul is presenting, and that's who we present. We have, in, in, in essence, the same call. Not exactly as Paul does, but we're also commissioned. Just like Paul, God commissioned us to go and make disciples. And we have the same commission. And our, our task also is to present Jesus, to present Jesus to people, 
to present him always. Paul considers himself a servant. Another thing to note, right in the beginning, I have become its servant. And I couldn't leave the servant part. I was like, okay, we'll just move on. But he considered himself a servant. And I was thinking about it. God's been impressing on us about servant-heartedness. I think also being in this text, the Colossians text, Paul considers himself a servant of the gospel and a servant of the church. First, a servant of God, but then. And so serving is something that I don't think we see a lot in our culture, to be honest. Um, I don't think we see a lot of examples of servant-heartedness and true servant-heartedness, and myself included. I'm lumping myself in there. I think more often in our culture, we have an attitude of, why should I do it? Why not someone else? I mean, I see it in my own kids, actually. It's a cultural thing. I'm not good at that. Let somebody else do it. Well, actually, it doesn't matter. You're called, and God's commissioning you, and it's okay. You may not be the best at it, but we still do, right? We still serve. It's not about us. I didn't make that mess. Why should I clean it up? I get that one all the time all the time. And this one I get too. I'm not a slave. I actually get that from my children. I'm like, oh. So this is the culture that we're in. I'm not a slave. Why should I do that? Somebody else should do it. Eh, I didn't do that. I'm going to clean it up. I don't have to clean it up. So what does it mean to be servant-hearted? I put down three things that stood out to me, and they're on the next slide. First, have a good attitude. Do things with a good attitude when we serve, no matter what we're doing. And I'm saying this to myself, too. Not do things begrudgingly. Um, I think sometimes we do things and then we kind of a little resentful about it, right? Like, eh, I have to do this. Secondly, serve without wanting something in return. This is a big one. Oftentimes we want to be noticed or we want recognition for the things we do. And real servant-heartedness is like serving without agenda. In humility not feeling like it's beneath us. I think a lot in our culture, there's a, you know, well, I'm the one with the doctorate or the PhD, so let someone who's not as educated or gifted do that. My time is better used elsewhere. But that's not servant-heartedness. Paul considered himself, he's really highly educated, yet he's in prison and he's suffering for the gospel. He considers himself a servant and I want to say, I did witness some servant-heartedness recently. Um, some of you were there. Mike was there. He just had to go, and Kalina was there. But we went to a worship, all worship, you know, we did the joint worship night as a church with a church in the city that we partner with. And I was part of that team, and Mike and I and Kalina and I had to go to the, the rehearsal. So it was a rehearsal on a Wednesday night, and we got there um, getting ready to practice. And the leader of the team had the whole stage, all the instruments set up, had all of our music printed off. And for those of you who aren't on a worship team, you may know that, or you may not know that usually we all do it together as a joint effort. He had set everyone up, had sound checked everyone, the whole stage, had printed everyone's songs, and was making the coffee and making refreshments for us as we came in. It was humbling for me, and there was no attitude. He wasn't like, I gotta do this, and why isn't everybody else helping me? There was no attitude, none. I was like, wow, I always think it's good for everyone to pitch in, but this is real servant-heartedness. He was serving the worship team, and he was serving us. It's humbling. I didn't even want to receive that. 
I don't like that. I like to do my part. We like to do our part, right? So I just have been so struck by what real servanthood is, and that stood out to me, and that was an example to me. And as leaders, might I say that we should be the ones modeling this, serving one another. Matthew 20, 28 tells us that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, came to serve, serve with no agenda. And he's our example. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father. And I think I was also, when I was preparing for this this, more, uh, this week, I realized, you know, Again, I'm using my kids as an example because that's my context. We're parents, and I'm with the kids. But sometimes they get real restless and like lose focus and don't know what to do with themselves. And especially when we come into an environment that's new or different, they don't know what's expected, right? So they're just kind of all over the place. Until we say, this is what mom and dad have asked you to do. This is all you need to do. Just bring that clarity for them of like, actually, all you need to do is, you know, clean up right here, read your book, take care of some, whatever we're asking them to do, we just give it to them. And it brings this peace for them. It brings this peace and this rest that they now know what they need to do. And it's the same with us as adults. We get restless, right? Sometimes we're like, Lord, what should I be giving my time to? What do I need to do? There's so many things I should be doing. I sh maybe I should be volunteering here. Maybe I should be doing this over here. Maybe I should go back to school. Maybe I should do... And oftentimes, we're all over the place just like kids with our focus and our attention. And I get there. And that's when I was like, there's so much rest and peace that comes when we just say, Lord, what are you asking me to do? What have you asked me to do? And when God brings that peace where you say, okay, you've asked me to lead the church and do the worship and love my family, um, be a wife to my husband. Is that right? Yes. And uh, love my kids. And that's what you've asked me to do. And that's what I can do that. Okay. And then there's so much rest and peace that comes when we just say, that's what he's asked me to do. I'm saying yes to God. And that's where we find our peace in our just yieldedness to the Lord and what he asks us to do. So that helps me a lot when I get all over the place. But Jesus was perfectly surrendered to the Father. You may say, I don't know what the Father is asking me to do. And that's when we say we need to get to know him. Get to know him. When we know Jesus more, he'll tell us. He'll make it clear. He won't hide his will from us, right? Those of you who have walked with the Lord a long time, he doesn't hide it from us when we press in with him. When we say, Lord, what are you asking of me? For you, well, for now, he's asked us to lead this church, but... For years, decade, he said, just be faithful where you are and serve. And that's what he asked us to do. And we kept saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? And he kept saying the same thing. Just be faithful and serve where you're at, at the church you've been called. And that's what we did for forever. Well, it seemed like for forever. So it's simple in that we surrender, but it's not simple in that sometimes we want something else, right? That's the challenge. <laughs> but Paul knew he was called. He was obedient to the call. We are also called. We are called. So I've already stated it, but his task is to make Jesus known. This was an aha moment for me. Um, I'll, hopefully I'll explain. But his task was to make Jesus known. Verse 27. To make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So this is the second time that Paul has referred to mystery. And so I was look, you know, looking into this a little bit. What is this mystery? We already know it's Jesus, but what does it mean? Well, again, until Jesus came, it was unknown that all people would be able to be saved. This was totally unknown. In the Old Testament alluded to it a little bit, right? There was prophecies. There was hinting at Jesus. But it was still unknown to this point that Jesus was going to have everybody. He was going to come, pay the price for everybody to be saved. So this was part of the mystery. Now everyone can be saved. Now it's not just the leaders, the righteous people, righteous in their own eyes. The Jewish leaders looked down on everyone thinking they were dirty, disgusting people, sinners. But now because of Jesus, everybody can have the same name, the same status, belong to the same family, just because of Jesus, not because of anything that we bring, anything. God's love can reach the worst of sinners. His love can reach the worst of sinners. The person that you struggle with the most, God's love can reach them. They're not too far for him. And that is the beauty of the message and the gospel that we get to be a part of and we get to proclaim. No one is more worthy than anyone else. And I felt this morning that someone needs to hear this too, that God isn't put off by our sin. He's not put off by our stuff. He was telling me that this week. If he can get past Paul killing Christians, he can get past us and our stuff. And so we have to get past our stuff and say, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've got a lot of stuff, but God can get past that. It's nothing to him. It's not shocking him. It's not throwing him. He can deal with it. He can handle it is what I'm trying to say. So Jesus... Coming is a perfect sacrifice. This is a part of the mystery that was being made known, but that, there was so much more to the mystery. Not only did he die, take our place, but also comes to dwell in us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. This truth of Christ coming and actually dwelling in us wasn't known. It was a mystery. Not only did he pay our, the price for our sins and save us, bring us into the kingdom of light, he dwells in us. He's with us. He's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is just the intimate relationship that we have with Jesus, which is the greatest joy of our salvation. The greatest joy of being saved is that we get to have intimacy with Jesus, that he dwells in us. It's like, how could it get any better? But then he said, and I'm going to come dwell in your hearts so you can walk with me, so I can be with you, and you can learn to walk and step with me. It's not a feeling. It's a fact, right? We don't always feel that God's in us. We don't always feel it, but it's a fact. It's in the Word. It's the truth. It's not based on our feelings. We're in intimate relationship with the King of Kings. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We live by faith. Every day we ask God, we tell him, I trust you afresh today, Lord. We live by faith that God is going to complete his work in us, 
that he's keeping us, that he's holding us, that he's saving us, that he's bringing us into glory. We live by faith that we will get to glory every day, just asking him, trusting him again. I think we trusted in him again this morning a little bit in the end of that song. And he himself is our hope. He's the certainty that we have that we're saved. Is Jesus in us. Paul goes about making the mystery known by proclaiming Jesus, just like we must do. He proclaimed Jesus. That's how he did it. That was his method of how he did his task. Verse 28, it is Christ whom we proclaim, warning every person and teaching every person using all wisdom. Christianity is a relationship with a person. I know most of us know this, but it's good. I mean, I was so refreshed by hearing this all again this week. It's a relationship with a person of Jesus himself. We're not asking people to join a religion. We're not asking them to join a club. We're not selling a a doctrine or a philosophy. We're not a denomination. We're the people of God, and it's a relationship with Jesus. We're people who relate based on the fact that we're all in relationship with Jesus, and we love him, and we're doing our best to follow him every day. And that's what we connect on. We love him. It's easier to say join a religion. It's easier to say join my club. Pay the $50 entrance fee. You need to do this. You need to serve this and do this and that. And then you can be in. I think people are more comfortable with that rather than say, come follow Jesus with us. It's, that's what, but that's the truth of what we are. We're in a relationship with a person of Jesus, learning to walk with him. What's Paul's hope? His hope so that we may present every person perfectly mature in Christ. That's his hope. Perfectly mature in Christ. So I was looking at the commentary, and it was saying how we don't have a really good translation of what Paul was meaning by perfectly mature. Those words don't actually, Marie knows, those words don't actually give the full intent of what his heart was. Like, perfect is is almost too strong of a word because we can't be perfect. We have the flesh. We can, have, we can never be perfect until we don't have the flesh, right? And mature is, oh, if I'm just a little bit further along than the next person. So that's almost not strong enough. Um, so what I liked is what, when I read in this one commentator that he was saying that Paul is referring to wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus being completely and in an undivided way oriented towards God. I like that definition. It talks about the heart. Orienting our lives towards God. That's what Paul is going for here. Not perfection. He's going for people who are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And this is possible. Because in Genesis 6 verse 9, there's the same word, and it it says that Noah was said to be blameless in this way. So if Noah can do it, it's possible. So we know that this is something that is possible. I used to hear that be perfect like Jesus is perfect, and I'd be like, well, I can never do that. So I guess that's not possible. But what he's asking of us, actually, we can do. It's about how we orient our lives towards God and be undivided towards him. That, that was an aha moment for me also. So finally, verse 29 To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. 
strenuously contend with all the energy. So we see here the combination of human effort that we need to bring with the power, the divine power and anointing of God. It's both. It's not one or the other, right? I wish we could say God's going to do it all. But actually, Paul is strenuously contending with all the energy that Christ works in him. He's working hard for the gospel. He's working hard. Church planning is hard, we'll tell you. And for those of us who came with us, you know that it's hard. And at times I used to think people who worked hard for the gospel may be striving. I'm ashamed to admit that. They may be striving. I used to think that. I judged. I'm ashamed to admit that because now I know that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> we're supposed to work hard for the gospel. We're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to give our all. It's so easy to be lazy. It's so easy to, you know, we get lazy. We'll go, you know, the whole weekend and watch a few movies and just do whatever. There's nothing wrong with having times like that. But you know what I'm saying? We're meant to work hard for the gospel. And that, I needed to hear that. Maybe you're the kind of person that works hard all the time and you need to hear just rest. So don't let me put on you what I'm saying, what I need to hear. So in concluding this morning, how am I doing on time? I'm doing okay. That's our, that's our text. In concluding, I just felt like God just wants to remind us knowing him is our great joy of our salvation. Knowing him. Like Paul, that's what we're about. That's what this church is about. We want to be the same. We have the same commission to make Jesus known. If you wonder what this church is about, that's what we're about. We want to make Jesus known. We want to proclaim him. We want to present him. And we want to follow him. And that's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to outwork it. So, and like Paul did, to teach and instruct tirelessly about Jesus, to walk with him ourselves. And it's our greatest joy is knowing him. I also felt, yeah, I think that's what I have this morning. Do you want to close up? No? How's everyone? You guys with me? Good. Okay. So that's, uh, it, was, it was good. It was really good, strong text. But I also wanted to say this morning that I felt, um, and I think it came through in the worship, that just God to remind us to build our lives on him. Just a reminder to build our lives on him. And it's been coming through since we started Colossians. But just build our lives on Jesus. People say a lot of things over us. Family, people, even prophetic words. You don't build your life on a prophetic word. We do not build our life on a prophetic word. Prophetic is good. It's meant to exhort and encourage us. But it's not our foundation. Jesus is what we build on. Jesus alone. And so people will say things. Even in Colossians, it's like things that will tickle your ears, right? That's what he says. Or be pleasing to your ears. But we build our lives on the truth. The truth of God's love the truth of his word, the truth that sometimes life is hard. A lot of times it's hard. And we build on the truth of Jesus and stay grounded on Jesus and Jesus alone and the freedom that we have, that we're free. We don't need to be attacked in who we are. We're free to be who we are because of Jesus. And we build our life on that in an unwavering, unmoving way because that's what God wants. That's what the Father wants for us. So I'll just pray for us this morning and then I'll hand it over to Hugh. And Father, just thank you, God. Just thank you, God, for this morning, God. Just thank you for speaking to us, Father.
Just thank you for revealing to me afresh, Lord, the joy that I have of knowing you, Lord. The joy that I have of having you dwell in my heart, God. And I pray for everyone here, Father. Just pray for everyone here, God, and bless them, Lord, I pray. Thank you for their hearts to follow you, God. Thank you for who they are. Lord, I pray that you would allow everyone at Restoration to be free, Lord, to be grounded and rooted and established in your love, in the truth of your word, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, and to be unwavering, Father, in who you are. And Father, speak even more identity to people this morning, Lord, of just who we are in you, Lord. Speak identity over your kids, God. And we just want to follow you, Lord, follow you and hear your voice, Father. We love you so much. We worship you this morning. Amen.